getting past 7 o'clock, and boy, are we excited for tonight. It's time for Iron Sports. This is the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. I'm here for you as well. Ira, of course, we've got um, not ideal situations around the world, and we'll talk about uh, the effects of corona in just a few minutes here on Ira on Sports. We're also going to get more into this draft because the NFL has said, Ira, we're drafting on time. Whether it's from people's living rooms or what, we're going to draft. Yeah, I mean, the, the draft, this is... <laughs> That's, they certainly have the whole playing field themselves to sports. We want everybody to be safe and healthy, and I think we have a great show tonight and a great guest. So Yeah, and that's the thing. You know, I'm, I'm really – it's like a somber Monday for me, Ira, because this should have been the start of Masters Week. We're not going to have that. We'll talk a little bit about how the PGA is going to position this, but we've got the next best thing to being at the Masters. It's Mark Cannizzaro. Tell us about it. Mark Cannizzaro is the top – uh, golf writer for the New York Post. Anyone who reads the Post sees Cannizzaro in there. He writes all the time, golf and everything else he covers. And he wrote a book called Seven Days in Augusta, Behind the Scenes at the Masters. And considering this is going to be Masters Week, I thought this would be a great guest to bring on and talk about just the, some great stories he has to tell. Very interesting. Uh, and uh, I just I, the book was the book was great. You've been I mean, raving about the book. <laughs> if you if you want to golf, if you are just like sort of into golf, read the book. There are stories after story after story in the book, and I loved it. He's a great writer, and he just brought out all everything. It wasn't just like one year; just literally all the different hidden stories. I learned so much. I mean, I watch the Masters every year. I follow it. I learned so much. No, and this is going to be a great interview with Mark Canizzaro coming up in just about twenty minutes here on Ira on Sports. Okay, Ira. We don't want to get too deep into it, but let's talk about, especially today, there's been a lot of changes just in the last 24 hours as to how sports are going to um, handle the coronavirus going forward. So let's talk about it. Well, just I think people have to understand this is not when they, quote, open everything up. Sports was the first to close and will be the last to to come back, especially, you know, and first with not fans and then mm-hmm. maybe until they get a vaccine with fans. So I think people are a little confused and I mean, I think people are way too optimistic about when sports are going to coming back. And I even see people talking about that because it's, it is a rolling open. I mean, right now, you can't play golf in Palm Beach County. Yeah. You can't. We got to go to Martin County. <laughs> you can't shoot baskets at a hoop. They took the hoops down. So you can't ride three people on a near bicycle around. So clearly, it's not going to be go from shooting hoops at a basketball hoop to going to the Florida Gator Stadium. You know, it's, <laughs> a, it's, just, not, it's just not happening. And that's what people, I think, have to understand. And I think one aspect of sports is that with security now, remember we have the 9-11, the terrorist issue, security. And you, could you imagine going to a games now and have to take your cell phones out, put it in one of those little dishes and mm-hmm. then get it? The Petri it, dish, the yeah. Petri <laughs> dish. It's, it's just never, I mean, there's so many factors and things that are going to have to be done. And, and so for sports fans, I mean, people just, you know, it's just, it's going to be very, very tough to get sports back. And I think we're going to cover a little bit right here about what's happening for each one of the sports. Well, let's start that off. And, you know, who I felt the worst for in all all of this was seniors in college who had been training and preparing for whatever they were going to do this year. And that's pretty much put on hiatus might have ended their career. Ira, And I think actually today we would have had the final four determined as of last night. I, I think as far as the scheduling would have went. So let's talk about college. Yeah, today we would have had the final four on Saturday and this would be the championship game. So tonight was going to be the, the championship game uh, uh, for the 
NCAA tournament in Atlanta, and then the Masters would start practice on Tuesday. Yeah. But they get, the NCAA decided to give spring sport athletes uh, another year. But not all of them. I talked to a lot of coaches. Like We had Bobby Pennington on from uh, uh, Colgate, and he said a lot of his seniors aren't going to come back. They're graduated. They want to spend another year. Yeah. Like, they want to go on with their lives. It's not that important for them to come back to play another year. They have to move on. So it's not going to be that great thing. Basketball players and winter sports are done. They're not getting another year. So you finished it. That's it. No tournament. You're not going to be do it all. And it's interesting with football, what they're doing. I mean, you see that big time programs are trying to figure out, I mean, every gym is closed. Everything to work out is. So these schools like Alabama are like, we're going to send you all our equipment. I mean, they have multi-zillion dollar. So they want to send equipment to people's houses. They also want to send, so uh, Alabama wanted to have iWatches or Apple, Apple, whatever, Mm -hmm. the Apple Watch on there so they can monitor their sleep patterns and everything. And the NCAA is like, well, we're deciding if we could do that or not. And is it really fair that Alabama (laughs) Alabama and Clemson can send equipment, but of course they have a you know five hundred thousand square foot facility anyway, so it's never fair (laughs) that they have all that. But that that's the point is that how are these? I mean, people don't understand for football players. They, all, I mean, all college athletes, but especially football, they are training year round. This is not they go to school and you see them September through December. It, it's a whole year round strength and conditioning. That's why the strength and conditioning coaches are making millions of dollars a year. So now they are totally out of that. And they're, these guys are not going to be sitting at home doing push-ups and sit-ups. I mean, they really have <laughs> to get them back in shape to go. And I think that's the, the point. And I really don't think football is going to be played. But if, if they do play football, I mean, they have to get these players back in shape fast and they will be out of shape. And it's going to be a, a challenge. Otherwise, you're going to have tons of injuries. So there's a lot of the idea of what these schools are going to do and what they're allowed to send these players to terms of equipment, how many video they get two hours a week now to work with them on video. Uh, it's, it's uncharted waters it's totally, for the NCAA. It's totally uncharted. And it's, and it's is it, are you going to say that the advantages that some of these teams have because uh, – um, uh, some of the teams have, like Alabama Clips, and they have more money. They're able to do these things. Yeah. No, it, it's crazy to think about. You know what's funny, though, Ira? And, you know, in reference to some of the college players, I've been hearing a lot of the older guys come out, guys who've been retired from the NFL for 10 years, saying, this is kind of how it was back when we did it. You know, they had the, the game tape on us, but we weren't into the combine like this. We, You know, it wasn't the level that it's on. So they think that these teams should be able to work with these guys regardless. Well, yeah, I mean, eventually, if you're players, I mean, we're going to go on, when I talk about high school sports, Yeah, uh, this is really interesting in terms of if you're a, a high school athlete now, and I mean, I see outside, I see kids running. Most kids don't run. So mm-hmm. most, I mean, I was young, I was like seven, eight years old, I'm always jogging, I'm always running. I loved it, biking. You don't see that from kids today, but... These kids have got to get in shape, stay in shape, do what they possibly can do uh, in their house, the push-ups, the sit-ups, or whatever they can possibly do to stay in shape. I mean, you would think that like uh, like a Venus and Serena, if they were like you had a brother and sister that you could actually you know, socially distance and do it with yourself in terms of, you know, they would be training four hours a day if they had their own private court. I mean, you're going to, unfortunately, you're going to see very wealthy people that have gyms in their house yeah. be able to take huge advantage of this, whereas... Uh, disadvantaged athlete might not have that opportunity unless an Alabama or Clemson sends it to them. Uh, but because uh, so many kids today, they need the uniform, the team, the referee, and the scoreboard to work out. Like that's the thing is that the people, the kids that are going to go out there and and go and do the runs and do the sprints and run up a mountain and run down the mountain and those <laughs> things, they're going to be in perfect. It's a great chance for them to to get better and improve, whereas everyone else is just playing Fortnite and eating Doritos. <laughs> it's funny you say that. My, uh, you know, where I live has multiple tennis courts, and I've seen every day the tennis courts are packed. And this is all people who know how to play. It's not me going out there and slapping balls against the wall. You could tell it's 
young, maybe college athletes, athletes and high school athletes that are trying to get their game down. So it's impressive to see. What do you think about, um, you know, as far as we talk about sports in general? Well, I also think the one other path is that college, high school sports can be one of the interesting things that I've not heard discussed anywhere is that what if we open up in different states? Like what if North Dakota allows high school football this year, but Florida doesn't? Yeah. Are you going to start to see players from here go and try to play their senior year at a school think about at another school? That would be, I think that's because it could be a patchwork where not, where some states have high school football and high school other sports and others don't. And then you're going to see, you know, usually these transfer rules in high school, maybe the high schools waive those transfer rules. I don't know, but that's a point in, in general. Yeah, you know, I didn't even think about that. And that'd be an enticing, enticing offer to someone. You know, California still can't have what, 50 people in, in one place, so you can't even have a football team. So that does make a lot of sense. Um, you want to hop into Major League Baseball here? Yeah. Um, well, the one point about pro sports is this, is that remember, you hear all these contracts that will be signed. Everyone's signing contracts. But that just because you sign a contract with a player, that's that's but, but your money you know, you're guaranteeing paying that money, but these teams are going to have trouble if their revenues are going to go down and definitely their revenues are going down. Mm-hmm. And that's where going to affect the salary cap because the salary cap every year at the NBA goes up every year. It's 60 million, 70. You look at the red, now it goes 110 million. Now it could go down to like 60, 70, but you have a player that you've guaranteed 35 million to. Now you're going to be over caps. They're going to have to decide how that's going to be structured and everything. An interesting thing is in, and you say, well, teams never go bankrupt. 1998, the Pittsburgh Penguins went bankrupt. And Mario Lemieux was owed $33 million in a contract that he kept deferring the yeah. money. And so he was like the top creditor on the, on the team to get that. And he was able to then take ownership of the team. That's how he owns almost 50% of the Penguins. Crazy. Because he was, they owed him the money. It was crazy that he was able to take control of the team. So teams could go bankrupt. Now, Major League Baseball, I mean, the one talk right now is... Uh, spring training games, which would be down here and in Arizona, and potentially doing those games without fans. Still think logistically really, really hard. Uh, a lot of players in one spot. Yeah. I just, I just can't see it. But that it seems like the only thing they're talking about. And then, and it's, and if it started, it would be like in July and August. Now remember that in in 1994. Uh, baseball was canceled. August 12th, they stopped and did not have a World Series. The Expos. Yeah. So, and then by 1995, it declined. I mean, that's the one thing about this is we've had cancellations of of never the Super Bowl and never the NBA Finals. We had cancellations of the NHL season twice, and we always cancellation of Major League Baseball. And fans, but this time we're going to have people will be less money, and there'll be the fear to come back in the games. Yeah, baseball is going to be something that, you brought it up on this show last week, that they need fans in the stands. This isn't the NFL where they can just get by on TV. So I I, I don't know how this is going to pan out for Major League Baseball, Ira. No, and they're in the, one, in the middle of the season, whereas football has more time to plan, and, and it's just going to be really hard for them to start. And I they have to be, and I just think that people are going to, you know, people say, oh, they want sports back, but on the other hand, if I can't go do certain things, then they're going to say, why are these players getting this benefit to go play? And I can't go and play a baseball game. So that's an issue. Let's talk a little NBA here on Iron Sports. It's the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. So I don't know if you've heard this, but some NBA players have started a tournament online. You can watch them play NBA on PlayStation against each other just to give people some action. But NBA, I feel like they don't really know what's going on either. Well, they're talking about maybe having games of horse at people's house uh, where they have where they have their own video set up. Mm. If you have a home gym, I was surprised that Giannis did not have a home gym when he said he goes. I'm not sure. I didn't know that. I can't believe you're the MVP of the league and you don't have a basketball court in your house. I just you're making zillions of dollars. But the NBA gets 22 percent of their money from tickets, so they have about almost 80 percent that are 
uh, from television. So if they can sort of figure this way to play without fans, but again, I just don't see them finishing the season. I think it's over. I think talk about them coming back and playing. It's going to be months and months. Are they really, if the Lakers won, would they be really the champions? Is yeah. it a real championship? I, I just don't think it's going to work. Now, they've had lockouts before. The strike in 98-99, the season was shortened to 50 games, but it was usually at the beginning and then they still play. There were all these lockouts and strikes where in 99-99 and 2011, uh, both because, it, and it started after Christmas is the early when people don't really care so much that it started later but that's what happened let's talk a little NHL here uh, we love NHL on this show and this is one Ira where you said again they really need people in the stands to make their money they have the highest percent of any major sport from their 40 percent of their money comes from tickets it's crazy and then the other is more like in, in when the advertising like for instance there's sponsorships but that's because you go to the stage you see all the signs like this and that that's all going to be gone if you don't play without fans so it's almost like 50 percent of their money comes from that and the nhl has these huge contracts out there so i could actually see a couple teams folding if they can't get money and they can't distribute it you're just going to be it, they, they either fold or go bankrupt or something but there might be some the nhl is the one league that I think is in serious trouble. Yeah, and I, I think that most of the fans would agree that it's uh, they're in the toughest spot, probably of all of them. The NFL doesn't seem to be in that bad of a spot. They're claiming they're doing the draft as planned. Um, our president came out today and said he anticipates the season is going off without a hitch. So let's talk about the NFL. I just don't see that happening. And they, I just don't think they're going to play with fans in September. I mean, we're getting now. It's like four months away. It was like five before, and, and I, we're just. I do not see the NFL playing with fans. Um, I don't know. They should. I think they should be planning to play on studios because they get the bulk of their money. Eighty-five uh, percent of their money is from TV. So that is a TV sport. Yeah. This is a TV sport. As much as you spend money to go to those NFL Dolphin games, and they charge so much, the money from TV. They have to put these games on TV to make their money for these players that they're going to sign all these ridiculous contracts to. So they, I think they're the ones, but they still are not talking that way because I think they want people to buy their season tickets and everything. So they're trying to up that. But eventually, there's going to have to be make a decision where they're going to they're going to NFL is going to play whether they play with fans or without. But I think they're going to go play in the like the Frisco's and in Vegas and and all those where they could just have a mm. studio-type setting. So, Ira, one of the um, sports that's being a little proactive here is golf. And uh, they've laid out some new guidelines today that you'd like to talk about. Wow. I mean, they're the one. They've set the PJ Championship of August 6th to 9th. Uh, the FedEx Cup would be like the 20th to there's three. The FedEx Cup, BMW, and the Tour Championship to the 7th. And then the U.S. Open would move on September 17th to the 20th. The Ryder Cup would be right after that the next week. And the Masters in November. And remember, golf... They can easily play without fans. I mean, first oh, of all, the sport is you're not supposed to be near the person. You're supposed to be far <laughs> away from the people. Less people play. You'd have limited fields and, you, and they would play without fans. It would look very unusual. But it's the one sport where, like, when you're talking about football, people tackling basketball. I mean, these, you know, besides, I'm always joking, Brooks Kepka and Brandon Chamblay, you know, they're not, <laughs> they're not supposed to be coming to blows or talking or everything. You know, you're not really mm-hmm. supposed to be anywhere around it. So golf can actually, that is sort of somewhat realistic to think that they might play those but the U.S. Open, I mean, the British Open was canceled. So that was that. That's the one major that won't be played this year. Crazy to think about, um, you know, we, how this scenario could work out and maybe seeing the Masters in November. It's just strange to me all around. What, what are they doing in tennis, Ira? Wimbledon was canceled because of the grass. You can't play a tournament. And then later, this is like the only time of the year could ever play mm. Wimbledon. So that was canceled. Remember, the Australian Open is one of their majors. It was already played. So they were able that was in January. So they're going to move the French to the end of September. The question is what they could do with the U.S. Open and the 
benefit, though, for thinking if they played without fans for the U.S. Open is that they do have indoor state. There's, there's two indoor courts mm-hmm. that in the stadiums that they could play in. And so that's a, that's a possibility to do something like that. It's going to horse racing, we just ran our Florida Derby. What was it a week ago? So they're going to keep going. They've moved the Kentucky Derby already. I haven't heard anything about moving the Belmont or the Preakness. I don't know if you have, but I'm wondering how this will shake up. Well, the, like events like the Kentucky Derby and Masters, they sort of set where they want to be. If the Masters want to be any day, everyone's going to move. Yes. No one's going to say, oh, no, no. You, you know, the, so the Kentucky Derby sets the tone. They ask, they say where they're going to be. Again, I don't know how they can run it without. They'll run it without fans because of the betting aspect. They're still running some horse races now, mm-hmm. but it'll be not the spectacle that it will not be the event at all, of course, if there's no fans there. But I can't see in September putting, they put like 150,000 fans in there to, for Churchill Downs. It's impossible to think that. Let's talk a little UFC. And Ira, to me, I don't know the numbers, but I would assume that UFC is another one that makes a ton of money off viewership, not so much from the fans in the arena. Exactly. And that's why they're really pushing hard. They have a fight April 18th, uh, Khabib and Ferguson, Tony Ferguson. Now, Khabib's now stuck in Russia, can't do it. But Ferguson's still going to fight. And Dana White was going to announce today or tomorrow when he when that fight when they're going to have that car they're trying to find a place to do that so that's the one event that they feel i mean they just had wrestlemania uh, yet last yeah. week, uh, last night, Rob that, Gronkowski got a title. <laughs> but they they recorded that before the shutdowns happened. So now we're in the middle of the shutdowns and lockdowns. So what where they could where they could think of doing it? But Dana White is uh, you know he's committed to, to showing UFC and trying to get this off. But it's difficult because UFC has a problem in that they have so many international fighters. They're from all around the world. Conor McGregor is from from Ireland, and Khabib is from Russia. So there's a whole issue about getting people and transferring yeah. and those things. So. Boy, it's a problem, but Dana White's you know, committed to try to figure this out. What about boxing? And this is a situation, Ira, where boxing was doing really, really well after that Wilder Fury fight. I think everyone was interested again. So what are they going to do? Well, everything's been canceled. Now, they'll be the one sport that could come back without the fans again. They they were it's relying all on, all on pay-per-view yeah. as much as the tickets or whatever. So they're dead. But, but I do think, I'll say this, as we know from boxing with Pacquiao Mayweather and all that, you know that boxing likes to, you, they, they wait. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of these things, they, there will be some interest. They'll try to they'll weigh it, but there might be some of the big fights. They'll say, we can wait because these fighters do take a long time off and do that. So, I, I mean, I think it hurts. What's killing is these local cards. You see cards everywhere, and, the, and they're not going to ever go on for, for a long, long time. But for the big main events, it'll be you might get a feeling that maybe in September, I mean, there was the Alvarez, Triple G, another Wilder Fury fight, Joshua fight. Like, you could, there could be these mega fights that they can put on. And again, it's very easy. Two guys, a, corner, a ring corner, a referee, test everybody, no fans, amazing. You know, so it's an easy one to think of how they're going to accomplish that. Let's talk about um, auto racing because I feel like they're trying to go on. <laughs> no, I think it's, they could because they're in cars and they're not really <laughs> close to each other. But it was, so that's one that could definitely start. I mean, you're seeing they're really advancing in the virtual aspect of it. They had the racers, the drivers, all race against each other last weekend. And Bubba Wallace was got in a he was a rage quit playing the video game, <laughs> and he lost a sponsor because he quit the game. I mean, it wasn't like he got in a fight. He just sort of like I quit the game. I didn't like the wreck. So I think they're really trying to. Now it's so funny is they have NASCAR drivers doing this, but really like a, maybe a seven year old kid probably could be a better racer than these NASCAR <laughs> drivers. But they're trying to figure that out. I do think that's intriguing that they're using the e games and going competing. But you would think that now if they certainly without fans, that's one sport that could. 
they're in cars. They're, they're clearly separated. I mean, <laughs> two, if two racers are next to each other, that's going to be a problem if they're, yeah, out, of a bigger <laughs> if they're out of a car. But um, So I think that the, the racing is one sport that probably could come back without the fans. Ira, unfortunately, we're up against the wall with uh, Mark Cannizzaro coming on the show uh, here in just a second. Um, we can do a whole bunch of draft next week. Is there anything you want to talk about with the NFL draft? We've got about a minute or so here uh, before we got to get to Mark. Well, I think what's interesting about the draft is I, we're going to talk about running backs next week. Yeah. And I'm going to say is that I've done a lot of research getting ready for the show. But I think that uh, DeAndre Swift, who I see everyone, they have Dolphins picking him at number 18. I've seen him that high. Yeah. And I am not sold on him. I watched some tape. They've been showing stuff on NFL Network. I love Jonathan Taylor, Wisconsin. And I love J.K. Dobbins of Ohio State. I think those are my two best running backs. And it's a, but it is great. When you try to do a show like this, and I'm trying to say, well, where are these guys like guards and tackles and centers? I mean, they're all over the place. You have some guys in the second round. Some experts say they're going to be in the second round, and the others are going to be fifth. I mean, so when we start doing the draft, I'm like, oh, that's a surprise. Well, the who? Because I can tell you. I could find you. It's like finding a poll. I could find one poll where some guy had him in the second round, and I have one poll where the guy had him in the fifth round. So how could it be a surprise? Because you see people, I mean, unless Joe Burrow doesn't go number one and two is not in the top five, I don't think anything is going to quote Chase Young in the top two or three. There's no surprises, especially at the end. Like, you see, like, I mean, I saw, like, top six offensive tackles and I look at Kuiper and the guy he has number one wasn't in the top six it's crazy CBS had. <laughs> I, it, it really is one of the most unpredictable drafts I've ever seen and I'm excited for it for that reason that yeah every single source you look at has a totally different valuation on players position to position and pick to pick. So this is why, if we got nothing else to look forward to, Ira, I'm ready for this NFL draft. And we're going to talk about it more next week. Yeah, and also you don't have the war room like when you saw the movie yeah. with uh, uh, Kevin Costner. You know, you're not going to have everybody. Everybody's going to be at their home. So I expect, you know what the pressure is going to be on is the decision maker of that draft. A lot more pressure. Can't put it on someone else. They're not. They're going to be in a room with Zoom and stuff like that. But it's. I think when you're not in that room and you're by yourself, that decision maker is going to a lot of pressure to make that call. Think about how hard it's going to be to make trades and things like that. I mean, like you said, you're not going to all be together. So there's not 10 people fielding phone calls. We got the Dolphins offering this. We got the Vikings offering this. It's going to be Let's make a phone call and try to get someone on the line here. And I think they need to expand the draft, give them more time, and really get this right because this could totally affect franchises. 100% correct. You're 10 minutes first round, then it goes down to five and what, five minutes. And and just to get it, anybody who tries to set up Zoom meetings, I'm sure everybody out there is doing it. <laughs> it's I a mean, struggle. You can't even set the Zoom meeting up. And nothing starts on time. I mean, it, it's a disaster. And I think to hold people to timing and you, and what if you know what if someone's trying to make a pick and they can't because the the, the technology and those things. There's there's a lot of issues that they, you know, they're definitely doing a virtual draft and they're not going to let people in their headquarters. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Let's get into Mark Canizzaro here on Ira on Sports. Um, this is Ira from Ira on Sports. We're talking to Mark Canizzaro, uh, the New York Post longtime writer, but he has a book out called Seven Days in Augusta Behind the Scenes of the Masters. Thanks a lot, Mark, for coming on today. Thanks for having me on, Ira. How you doing? I'm doing good, doing good. We're just trying to talk sports. I know this is a really bad, you know, tough time for everybody, and we're just trying to to come out. I'm encouraging people to read. I mean, this is a, don't just watch the news every day and just you know see what the news are. Just these you know, we have great authors with great sports books. If you love sports, just get yourself immersed in a book, and then for hours you just enjoy reading these books. And and Mark, you just came out with this tremendous book about the Masters. I know we're the Masters pushed back this year, but you've been to 25 straight Masters. So you definitely have a lot of stories to tell. I do, and I've been, you know, really fortunate uh, to, to do that. To be honest with you, because you know, as as you know, Ira, it's it, that's a you know, the, 
I think the thing about Augusta and the Masters that so makes it so unique is that it's it's first of all you can't just go play Augusta. You can't go call up or you know you you have to have you have to know somebody who's a member there just to you know get through the gates. And uh, it's also, in my opinion, uh, having covered pretty much every sport around the globe. Um, I think it's the hardest ticket in sports to, to get is for a master's ticket. So, so many people have not been lucky enough to be there, you know, get a ticket and go, go whether, whether it's just for a day or a practice round or anything. So, you know, there's, it's almost, to me, there's almost like a, a, like a mythological vibe to the, to, to the masters in Augusta National because people haven't seen it. They've just seen what they've seen on television. And, uh, so what I tried to do with the book was, not only talk about, you know, and then relive some of the incredible things I've seen that actually took place on the golf course, you know, like Tiger's win last year and his win in 97 when he kind of introduced himself to the world and, uh, you know, everything in between. Um, you know, I also try to kind of blend in some, some interesting stuff that maybe you, you don't see on television, you know, just some, some of the odd stories about what goes on around the town and, and things like that. And um, so I tried to do a little bit of that, and you know, I did a chapter on the Butler Cabin, which is almost again, it's kind of like almost this kind of mythical place. Nobody really knows what's the Butler Cabin. I, to be honest with you, I, I I think I covered seven or eight masters before I even knew where the Butler Cabin was. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, so it's just kind of a it's, it's a lot of interesting stuff to see down there, and 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 uh, um, I've been really lucky to be able to have covered those those amounts of masters and seen some amazing things, and in, in my Years as a sports writer, you know, if if I'm putting a top ten list of the most amazing things or, that I've ever covered, you know, a good number of those Masters uh, tournaments would be in that top ten. And some of those odd, the, the the unique features of the Masters. How about like the Champions Dinner? I mean, what other tournament has you know you don't have in the Super Bowl that Bill Belichick gets to pick the meal for everybody else? I mean, it's very yeah. such a, it's so unique. And you went into detail about what the players do and all the issues with the Champions Dinner. And I, I thought that was a great chapter in terms of you know if you were talking about food and, and what each each golfer wanted to have for that. Yeah, I mean, it's it, that's that's one of those traditions that they have at Augusta every year. Um, and it's it's you know other tournaments have champions dinners, but this is like the ultimate champions dinner. Like all of the past champions who are living, generally show up. I'm not sure if there's there's rarely, if ever, a time unless there's a health issue or something like that that a past champion does not go to that dinner on the Tuesday night of Masters Week. Um, you know the seven days in Augusta title actually is is it's literally I kind of I segmented it out to Monday through Sunday, the Monday the start of the week and. You know the practice rounds and what takes place right through the championship final round Sunday, and I try to coincide some some uh, um, some of the sub chapters with those days. And Tuesday, under the Tuesday, was a sub chapter of the Champions Dinner, and I talked to a bunch of the you know past champions that have been there, and you know Phil Mickelson, for example, he's a guy who loves to tell stories and is a big you know. He loves to tell everybody, you know, how much he knows about everything and whatnot, and, and uh, that's one place. He said that's the one night where I don't want to tell any stories. I just want to sit back and listen to the stories of these, you know, these past legends, you know, that have won. Uh, you know, the the old timers. You know, that's what he gets a kick out of instead of telling the stories. <clears throat> so, you know, and the other unique thing is the, as you referenced, is the, uh, you know, the past champion. Um, chooses the menu for that night and uh you know tiger woods famously had cheeseburgers and milkshakes and french fries for you know when he won in 90 after, after excuse me after he won in 90, 97 um 
you know, a lot of the champions try to, you know, I, I know Phil Mickelson for one of his more recent of his three, I believe it was his most recent of his three Masters victories, um, he he purposely put a Spanish uh, ensemble together for, for his... Uh, for his meal to honor Seve Ballesteros, who was always, you know, was one of his idols when he was a kid. And Seve was, I don't know if he had just passed or he was not in good health or something. I can't remember exactly offhand at the very moment, but you know, he did that to honor Seve. And uh, so those kind of things are unique. And the other thing that guys have talked about is how nerve wracking it is because they have to stand up and kind of, you know, they're the host of the dinner. So they have to stand up and have, you know, say a little speech to start the dinner and, you know, that could be pretty nerve-wracking. You know, like for somebody like Tiger or Phil, who's, you know, who's, they have multiple green jackets in the, in the, in the locker, um, you know, it's a little bit, you know, uh, I don't want to say been there, done that, because that kind of diminishes a little bit. But, you know, for a guy like Patrick Reed or Char- Charles Schwartzel or somebody who's a one-timer, you know, one-off kind of guy, you know, it's pretty nerve-wracking. So uh, how, who go, how many uh, it's guests? one of those places you'd like to be inside. You'd like to be a fly on the wall at one of those dinners, see, which, unfortunately, we, we don't have access to. And does, do they bring anybody, or are they just them, it's just the champions? Are they, are they to bring yeah, friends no, no, no plus ones. It's all it's a boys' <laughs> night out. Um, it's, 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 all, it's all the guys with the green jackets, basically, and the, and the, the club chairman, um, who right now is Fred Ridley. You know, prior to that was uh, Billy Payne. So, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, um, Mickelson had a funny anecdote. I won't. It's a long story, but I'll keep it very short. But essentially, nobody is allowed. To, I mean, they are they are militant about having no cell phones at Augusta National on the grounds. Okay, <clears throat> whether it's whether it's on a regular day or if it's tournament day, whatever. And uh, Phil had told a story that a bunch of the guys at the, at the dinner table thought he was completely BSing about. You know, he had some sort of anic- some sort of factual nugget that everybody was like, "You're full of it." You don't know that's complete bull. You know. And Billy Payne pulled his cell phone out of his pocket, his jacket pocket. Said, you know, I'm going to Google this and just check this out. <laughs> and Phil was like, well, "Wait a minute, you you're not supposed to use a cell phone at, at Augusta National." And Billy Payne says, "I'm the chairman. I can use a cell phone." <laughs> so uh, you know, just goofy stuff like that that takes place behind these behind the walls. There is you know really fun stuff. And then you mentioned about the green jacket. I mean, I can't think of, besides the Stanley Cup, when the players are allowed to take the cup around, I mean, the idea that you can have the jacket for for a year uh, and wear it wherever you want, and then you're not allowed to take it out. You had so many funny stories about people who won the jacket, what, where they wore it, and things like that. It's just, it's so unique to the Masters to have this green jacket, and everyone knows what that means. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really, to me, it's the mo- it's, if it's not the most unique uh, prize in in professional sports, it's got to be right up there. I mean, I'm a huge you know Stanley Cup guy. I love the cup. I I, I always equate the Stanley Cup to the to the claret jug at the British Open because it's kind of like, you know, it's a similar thing where you 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 can bring you know the team gets to have the cup and they give it around all year in the NHL and and the same thing for the 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 champion golfer the golfer of the year who wins the British Open at at Augusta at the Masters. You wear that jacket. I mean, it's like you know, I mean, some of the stories you referenced, you know, and, uh, you know, Phil Mickelson was, you know, wore his out to a Krispy Kreme drive through <laughs> taking his kids to get, uh, get donuts the next day. You know, Tiger talked about sleeping in his jacket, you know, the, you know, the first couple of nights that he had it. Um, and yeah, you know, I mean, you know, Sergio Garcia would wore it out, you know, at, at a, uh, um, when he was kind of doing the kind of official ceremonial kickoff to, uh, to a, uh, a, uh, uh, 
a, a huge soccer match in Spain, uh, um, Barcelona and uh, Madrid, and Real Madrid and, and Barcelona FC. You know, so he you know, he was over there wearing his green jacket in front of a hundred thousand people in the stadium. You know, some of the guys wear it to Wimbledon. You know, it's, so it's just a really fun. You know, thing for guys to do with it, and uh, and after that year, you're not after that year that you've won, you've had, you're you're the champion. It goes in the locker, and you you do not wear that jacket outside the club unless you're at the club. That's it. Um, so <clears throat> that's another thing that makes it unique. There are, there aren't there aren't Augusta members sashaying around uh, you know the, the nice restaurants in Augusta, Georgia, wearing their jackets out at, for dinner. That doesn't happen. They does they don't leave the property. So it's 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 you know. It's a it's a funny, unique um, kind of quirky tradition there. We're talking to Mark Canizzaro, the author of Seven Days in Augusta, is just out in bookstores today. Of course, you can order online and order an electronic version or, or, or hard copy. But Mark, you're just talking about you know wearing out in, in Augusta, and you have some just great stories in the book about the town and how this the town just you take this whatever small town, small medium sized town just comes alive, and all the restaurateurs and the, everything from John Daly at a Hooters, and it was it's yeah. a great it's it's it, it has the town itself is different. I mean, you could have the the difference with the unique nature of the club, but then the town itself has their own stories. There's no question. I mean that that one week a year, that, those seven days in Augusta, to steal my to my my title, is that makes that town's year, that city's year. You know, every 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 year. Um, you know, I did one of the chapters I do is on the and on, on a kind of a honky tonk steak joint that's uh, right down the street from. From Magnolia Lane, uh, you can almost you know hit a golf ball into his parking lot. That's called uh, T Bones, and it's just been the they call it the unofficial 19th hole of Augusta because all the caddies hang out there and drink and eat all night, and the fans flock there, and players have gone over the years. You know, Fred Couples has has over the years has has given uh, um, he brings a, a, a you know a Masters flag autographed from the locker room. Um, every year, almost every year, to, to 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 this guy Mark, who owns the place, and uh, you know, it's just such a unique. You know, I, I, Mark, the owner of the place, told me. I asked him. I said, you know, what? Just roughly, what's your business for that one week? Like, what does that do compared to the entire year? And he essentially told me that one week, one week of business at T Bones is takes care of you know, that's that's the equivalent of maybe a month and a half two months of, of business wow. at, the, at, at the at the at the restaurant and uh you know the other interesting dynamic there you know ira is they you know the culture there is so much that so many people just rent their houses for the week there's not a lot of hotels that are down there i mean they you know they got you got your courtyard marriott's and things like that and hampton inns and whatnot but there's not a lot of large hotels there you know um, downtown, you got a couple of little, you know, like full service Marriotts and stuff. But you know, one's one's full service Marriott. But most people who stay there are staying in rental homes, and uh, those people who rent their ho- houses out are making, you know, in some cases, you know, a half a year's mortgage or maybe an entire year. They're paying their entire year's mortgage off by renting their house out for one week. Uh, I do it, you know. I've been for 25 years. I've never, I've rented a house, you know, for 24 out of the 25 years I've done the Masters. I've rented a house. The first year I was there, um, which was a, a lesson in price gouging, I stayed at a Days Inn uh, that <laughs> normally cost $25 a night, and they were charging me two two fifty a night. Uh, and that was in 1993, my, 1994, my first Masters. But every year of the year since, I've I've shared houses with other colleagues, and we rent them, and. Uh, you know, I've rented for the same guy, uh, particular gentleman, um, 
for the last four or five years, they're just about a half mile from the club. And he grew up, that was what he grew up in. When he was a kid, his dad would rent their house out, and they would go on vacation for the week, and they would collect their, you know, week's worth of rent and uh, and go on vacation, and it would pay for their vacation for a family of four or five or six or whatever it is. So it, it's just a very unique, you know, and that's why right now, I mean, you know, let's hope that they do have a Masters there. I mean, selfishly, we all want the Masters to take place. Um, you know, but I mean, you know, I would hate to see it not take place in October like it's rumored to be rescheduled for because I'd hate to see that city lose that one week of revenue because it's, you know, it it it's it could be debilitating. Also, to have a Masters without fans, so that would be, other, you know, one of the options to say, you know, not have the fans even at the tournament would just take, would kill that town in terms of not having that event. Yeah, absolutely, because obviously that's where all your business is coming from is those fans driving up and down Washington Road, which is the main drag, you know, on which the uh, the course is uh, located. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, I think, you know, when there was, you know, I mean, obviously when, 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 when Augusta, canceled the Masters. It was in early stages. It was you know, obviously right around when the PGA Tour was shutting everything down. I was actually down in Florida, you know, covering, I covered the Arnold Palmer tournament and the Arnold Palmer Invitational. I was at the Players' Championship when they canceled it. Uh, so uh, uh, the Masters canceled pretty quickly after that. I don't think the Masters wants to conduct a Masters without fans. That's my opinion. I, you know, that's not anybody there telling me that. But I just think that, you know, their patrons, as they call them, are <laughs> such a fabric of what they do that week. Um, I don't think they. I don't think they want to do that. So you know, you mentioned earlier about the Masters tickets, and I've I've been to a zillion sporting events. I've been to six U.S. Opens, and I, this year I was actually going to go to the Masters. It's my first time to go, and I've been to the PGA oh. three times. And uh, I mean, in terms of like fifty NBA Finals games, fifty World Series games, a dozen Super Bowls. But so the Masters was one of those bucket list things that I really hadn't just had didn't go to, and this was the year I was planning to go. But the tickets are they're only three hundred seventy five dollars if you can for the whole week if you can get yeah. those three hundred seventy. That's that's the entire week is for three seventy five. But you know you're not really paying that three seventy five. It's crazy. That's the one thing that Augusta National does uh, is they do not gouge uh, whether it's the cost of the tickets. Um, whether it's you know the food that you buy on on the premises or the the merchandise, none of it is has crazy markups like the other tournaments do and the other all of the sporting events that I've covered big sporting events do um but you know it's a matter of getting your hands on that three hundred and seventy five dollar week long pass that's the that's the trick ira uh, did you have a ticket for the week, or did you? How did you? What was your? I was working with someone to get in. I was going to go to the final four on Monday and then go get at, I, and actually come. Just I wanted to go to some of the practice rounds, like Tuesday. I was going yeah. to go to Tuesday's practice just to get my feet wet in terms of the tournament. Well, yeah, that's it's funny. Some people some people prefer to go to the practice rounds because it's a little more accessible. Um, you can maybe could see a little bit more. Um, you know, the the par three contest is always on Wednesday. Uh, which is a really, really cool, unique thing. Um, I do a chapter on that as well. Uh, but, you know, some people like to go to the tournament just to see that par-3 tournament. Um, you know, others don't want to go to the par-3 tournament because there's so many people there, it's hard to see. You know, so it's everybody has their, you know... I, I tell you what, what what interesting tradition is, a lot of the patrons at Augusta, I've seen it for years, I see people streaming out of the property to go home on the Sunday like after lunch, because they want to go watch the final round on television because they feel like they could see more. You know, they could see they could see it better. Um, it's amazing. You know, that, that really is an interesting culture that, that I've seen for 25 years. So, so many people actually go home 
whether it's to watch the entire back, you know, final round on TV, or maybe they leave to watch the back nine on, you know, on TV, the final nine holes. But uh, I mean, listen, that's not to say the place is empty because it's packed. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's just you know, it's a it's a it's a tremendous you know sporting spectator experience, um, and they've done amazing things there. You know, every year they go there, something something new is done. You know, I mean, their merchandise facility now is like a Walmart. It's just gigantic. <laughs> um, you know, so, but again, and you know, you could buy stuff and you can go, and they right outside the, the, the merchandise facility, they have places where you can go ship your stuff home so you're not lugging it around. They've got everything figured out over there, you know. Well, you know, the one thing I loved about the book is that uh, this stage is so grand and that you have some of the greatest players to ever play be, be, have success on the stage like Tiger Woods and, and Phil Mickelson's and, and people not have success, the Greg Normans. And I think it, but what their success is magnified and their failures are amplified or however you want to say that. But I mean, clearly Tiger's emergence in 97, I mean, that for the golf, for Tiger, for the Masters, I mean, and you just covered that in detail in terms of the effect of the fact that he, you know, had the lowest score ever, had a 12-shot victory margin, and it was just um, the, the tremendous atmosphere, and you really covered that in the book well. Yeah, I mean, that ch- that changed, you know, that 1997 Masters win for Tiger, I mean, that changed the golf world, that changed the face of the entire sport, um, you know, economically, um, interest-wise, I mean, purses started going up like crazy. You know, Tim Fincham at that time was the was the commissioner, and you know, I mean, he was you know he was there when it just everything just exploded. And uh, um, you know, some of my favorite stuff that I you know that I unearthed in just doing some interviews was just talking to some of the people that you know, like, like Paul Azinger, for example, who's a very very colorful character and and obviously a tremendous broadcaster on air and you know was a great player in his own right when he played you know he played one round with tiger uh during that masters uh they played they, at the, back then they used to repair after every round so he played a round i believe it was the first round with tiger and he said he he told me he said he'd kind of heard about the he thought it was like a myth you know this kid <laughs> that hits it so far and you know, and Azinger's kind of a brash guy, you know, and Azinger told me, he's like, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I, w- I want to see this stuff up close and personal. You know, I want to see what this is really all about. He said he saw Tiger hit about two balls, you know, with irons in that round, and he he literally looked within himself and said to himself, I'm never going to win a golf tournament again with this guy on tour. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, that's just kind of, that was his, you know, I mean, that's what everybody saw. I mean, back then, Tiger was longer than everybody everybody was. He hit the ball higher than everybody could. He could do things in the golf ball that nobody else could. Obviously, a lot of guys have caught up to him now because, and technologies helped that as well. Uh, and certainly his physical failings, you know, have, have, have brought him back to the pack as well. But back then, I mean, he was a unicorn, man. I mean, he was like... You know, I always equate Tiger, um, Ira, to, and not just at the Masters, but anywhere, because everybody wants a glimpse of Tiger. You know, and I always, and I, it's like a circus. It's like the rare circus animal behind the big, big fence. You want to peer over the fence just to have a look at it. You know what I'm saying? Just to see what this incredible, you know, force is or whatever. And uh, I feel like that's, you know, pe- people have a fascination with Tiger because of that. And that all really started in 97 when he, you know, exploded onto the scene at, at Augusta. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got some really fun uh, descriptive recollect- recollections from players, you know, 
you know, from that 97, you know, win of his and just kind of how he came on tour. And, um, you know, that was that was a lot of fun doing that. We're talking to Mark Canizaro, New York Post writer who wrote the book Seven Days in Augusta, Behind the Scenes in the Masters. Uh, Mark, I've been reading your columns in the Post for years. I love how you always talk about these obscure golf courses that no one would know about, and you bring it to life like it's almost Augusta. So I, I enjoy every of your writing. But another character that you bring out and we are familiar with down here in West Palm Beach is Phil Mickelson. And uh, the story that you had about that one time he was – on Tuesday with Tom Brady and Tom Brady was like, let's you know throw some balls. And you were, <laughs> and that was a great story that I guess for like an hour, Tom Brady was throwing balls and Mickelson was catching it like on the 10th uh, fairway or something like that. You know, this was my, might be my favorite part of the, of doing the book. Um, I, uh, Phil gave me about an hour or so. We, 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 we got together several times to, you know, to talk for me to interview him for the book. And, uh, at last year's Players Championship uh, at Sawgrass, um, he invited me to come over to the place he was staying, and uh, and we sat down over coffee for an hour, and just you know he rattled off a bunch of anecdotes and cool things like that, and we were kind of just finishing up, and uh, uh, he was into it, you know, and which was which is always makes it more rewarding when you're doing those kind of things because a lot of times when we're interviewing people, you feel like you're kind of taking their time and you feel guilty about that or whatever, and. And I was very appreciative of the time that Phil was giving me. And we're just kind of wrapping up. And we really just kind of like, okay, Phil, that's great. Thanks. Uh, you know, he's going to head over to the course to, you know, get ready for his round that day. And he goes, oh, no, wait a minute. He goes, I got one, I got one more anecdote. You got a minute? You got one more minute? Let me, I got this cool anecdote. It just came into my mind. And it was the Brady anecdote. And it's my favorite anecdote of the entire book. And it essentially was, you know, Phil every year goes to Augusta, um, maybe three, four, or five weeks before the tournament, you know, maybe, you know, just to get, the, the conditions aren't the same, but just to get a little feel and do some practice up there. It's been a ritual of his for for a number of years now. And he'll sometimes go up over the years, he's gone up with some fellow players like Keegan Bradley or Ricky or, you know, a couple of the boys will go up and play. Or maybe some corporate guys that he knows or whatever. And on this particular occasion, him and him and Tom Brady were sharing a cabin down the 10th hole. And uh, and hanging out for a few days, playing 36 a day, having dinners, drinking some good wine, and, you know, just hanging, you know, working out in the morning. So he told me that it was one morning, they were getting up really early to go play golf, and, and they were working out before they go out and play golf at the gym. And they're going down to the gym, and Phil, Phil says that, uh, Brady says, hey, he goes, would you mind having a, you know, after we get out of the gym, having a little toss with me, a little football <laughs> toss. I got. He goes, I'm... I'm going out to uh, California next week to have a you know to throw with uh, Julian Edelman, who's one of his Patriot receivers at the time. And I just want to you know to like keep my arm loose. And Phil was like, you know, I won't use the ex- expletives, but he was like, Are you ex- you know are you freaking kidding me? You're the greatest quarterback of all time. Of course I'm going to have a toss with you. Let's go. So they are out now, you know, down off off the tenth fairway, and, and it's like dusk, you know, uh, or you know it's 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 early morning, I should say, and. Uh, the sun's just rising, so it's, the light's not great. And Phil is telling me the story about how Brady is just whistling these balls at him. And, you know, Phil Mixon's got to play the Masters in a month and change, right? And he's telling me about Brady drilling the ball at him. And he's like, it's too macho to say, hey, can you lighten it up a little bit? Probably broke his so finger or he's, something. You know, so he's like, he tells me he's trying to catch the ball with his fingertips. He said a couple times it hit him right in the palm, and he felt like he felt pain shooting up his arm. <laughs> I'm just like thinking to myself, can you imagine? It, that, that would be so Phil Mickelson if he had a withdrawal from a Masters because he was having a catch with Brady, and Brady threw the ball too hard at him, and he hurt himself, you know? 
Uh, so it was just a fun. I mean, it's, you know, that to me, I just love that. I love that. I just, just, I'm just picturing that is is makes that that anecdote so fun. And Phil being, you know, too much of a tough guy to tell him to to lighten, lighten it up a little bit, you know. Well, the other thing about the Masters we said is is the pl- players that have blown leads. I mean, we we, we know about Greg Norman in '96. You did write about how he lost a six shot lead to Faldo. Jordan Spieth, who the year before had won it and then had a five shot lead, but then uh, bogey at uh, ten and eleven, and yeah. then a quadruple bogey at twelve just threw away the tournament. And Rory. then. And then Rory in 2011. I mean, these are you know the the best golfers ever, and, and they had these horrendous moments. And if you bring up to them what's your, if you ask them like what's your worst moment, they probably point to that Masters collapse because of the importance of the tournament and the scope of the collapse. Yeah, it's no question. I mean, there's it's funny, you know, Ernie Els. You mentioned some of the guys that had some close calls there. Now Ernie didn't blow a lead, but Ernie Ernie had some played really really good golf at Augusta over the years. And that course was made for his game, and he was in the mix several times, and he just had his heart ripped out from you know from him. You know, Mickelson actually just stole the tournament from him in '04. You know, they were dueling down the back nine with birdies and eagles. It was just it was some of the greatest theater of sporting theater I've ever seen in my life. And uh, that '04, you know, Masters when Phil won his first major, and Ernie was right there. And I, I interviewed Ernie last year uh, at actually at the Arnold Palmer Invitational for this book and uh and I you know I asked him about the masters and and he's you know I said you know he and he he basically said it was it was a bleeping nightmare for me you know he was pretty graphic and I and I said I, and I, it took me aback and I said I said so you don't really even though you never won there I said do you never really you don't have that romantic vibe and you know <laughs> about Augusta and he he said no it was a freaking nightmare for me he said and he basically said he goes you got guys like Tiger and Phil and and Fred Couples and you know and the guys that that Augusta has been good to you know the gods so to speak if you will right and then then already said you got like me and Greg Norman and Tom Weisskopf who's another guy that was you know that that had chances there and never you know one of the great golfers of his generation and never won there and he goes it, it just never it just never treated us right you know and um you know, Greg Norman was the top of that list. I mean, I never, you know, that I, you know, there's, there's a couple of sporting events that will never leave my mind, and one of them was that '96 Masters when Norman lost that lead, and just the, you could just feel it around the golf course, Ira. I mean, it just, I was out walking. I mean, I, I, I was, you know, out walking the golf course, and I'm watching this unfold, and and it just, it was uncomfortable, you know. It was like watching a car crash in slow motion when you didn't really know what the result was going to be, but you had a pretty good idea what it was going to be. And uh, I'll just never forget, you know, being at Amen Corner when when Norman airmailed the green with his with his approach with his with his shot to the twelfth green, and the ball ended up in the azaleas, and they they're over there like doing a hunt and rescue for the ball. They can't find it. He's got to come all the way back across Ray's Creek and you know and hit another shot, you know, from the drop area. And uh, I just never forget that. And and what what stands with me more than anything about that 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 day is how Norman handled it afterwards. That'll be seared in my memory forever. Is the class, you know, and and just the way he handled it. Uh, he didn't run from it, you know. I mean, he just, you know, he was nothing but class, and he was stand up, and he, he answered every question. 
And, uh, you know, I, I equated a little bit to a British Open in 99, 1999 when John Vandeveld blew the shot, blew the lead at the British Open at Carnoustie. And he handled himself in the same way. I still remember those two, those two moments when those, when those guys should have been hoisting the trophy and they, they threw it away. And, uh, and they just, you know, part of them is in shock, but, you know, the inner part of them is acting with the class that they are, you know, and so I've never forget Norman for that. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he'll never get over it. You know, he'll never get over not winning the Masters. See, he might say he's gotten over it, but he'll never, until <laughs> he goes to his grave, it's going to be part of him. We're talking to Mark Canizzaro uh, seven days in Augusta behind the scenes of the Masters on uh, True Oldies 95.9, 106.9. This is Iron Sports. Um, and then you finish... The book with uh, you, you wonder if Tiger how he can replicate from '97 to come back and then even bookended with something even more amazing with the the 2019 Tiger and you really went into detail. I mean, you were interviewed. I think you most interviewed every single golfer and asked them their opinion. It was just really great how you lay. I mean, I'm sort of and I've seen read books about this and everything, but how you laid it out was perfect. Uh, just, just getting the excitement and just the awe that the other golfers had about what Tiger was doing. Yeah, you know, Ira, I think, you know, that whole day, that Sunday, the week was obviously special, but you never know what a golf tournament, you know, I just, I've covered so many golf tournaments where I haven't, I haven't written a person's, a certain person's name down the entire week, and then all of a sudden he appears on Sunday and wins the golf tournament, you know. So, you know, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't have the feel all week the Tiger was going to win the tournament, but he was, he was, he was in the mix, you know, and that, alone makes it makes any tournament electric and it makes augusta even more electric and uh you know when that sunday came around what i remember a couple things that i remember most about it was i remembered being out on the course when he was when he kind of hit the back nine and uh you know molinari had the lead and molinari had stabbed tiger off uh if you remember at, at carnoustie in the previous british open uh in previous july um, and he, you know, he was uh, just seemed unflappable guy that just didn't make the dumb mistake, you know. Um, and he was, you know, he was, his lead wasn't big, but I think it was two on Tiger and one on, if I'm not mistaken, on on the the next guys there. And all of a sudden, they get to twelve, and Molinari hits a tee shot in the water, and it was like it just gave everybody life. And it, to me, it almost. Because all of a sudden, they, you know, he, he he walks off the 12th green and Molinari doesn't have the lead, you know, and Tiger is now tied for the lead. And I'm like, it's almost like Tiger turned into the Tiger who used to just close everybody out with, with his, you know, with, you know, like I always call it Mariano Rivera kind of closing speed, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, it's like when that moment happened on 12, Tiger just seized the moment, and he just, you know, he did not make another mistake on the way in. Molinari made another mistake on 15, uh, hit a bad tee shot. Um, and Tiger, you know, he only shot 70 in the last day, but Tiger did what he did, you know, he did what he did for years to people. You know, he was the guy that didn't make the mistake while everybody else made the mistakes. And uh, he made the shot when he had to make the shot. And, uh, you know, when he got to 18, which is my greatest memory of, of, uh, of that day, his reaction, his, his visceral reaction on 18 when he clinched it uh, was nothing like I'd ever seen. I've covered all 15 of his majors, that being the 15th. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, I've never seen a reaction like that to me. There was such a release of emotion, and I think it was, there was so many layers to it 
you know, I think the first layer was the fact that he never, you know, thought he'd ever be in that position again to win another major, you know, with all those back injuries and surgeries that he was gone, you know, not to mention all of his personal issues that he had, you know, that kind of tore his life apart. Um, but, you know, the, all, the other thing was, the other element to it was he had his kids were standing greenside uh, with his mother and his girlfriend. And uh, his kids, you know, Tiger's been talking for years about the fact that his kids had never seen him, you know, win a major championship or win anything, really. And uh, that was incredible. And the reaction to the crowd was just, I mean, you saw it on television. You know, there was like a human tunnel of people when Tiger walked off 18, and they're chanting his name. And I was right there. I mean, it was just, I mean, you know, it was, you're, you're trying to catch your breath. It was so electric. And, uh, you know, a lot of those reactions that you referred to, you know, were just, you know, I it was fortunate enough to interview a lot of the players, his peers, friends and peers and foes even, and, you know, including Molinari. You know, even guys like Brooks Kepka, who was right there, you know, and and uh, Xander Shoffley, who people forget was right there as well. These guys, I mean, they were they were a shot off, tied for lead, whatever, down the stretch. They were so awed by Tiger winning, it almost took the edge off of them not winning, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? Because they were so they had a front row seat to it, you know, to that kind of history. Uh, and uh, so, you know, obviously, you know, certainly Kupka's gone on, you know, one, you know, he's won four majors, so he's not hurting for majors. <laughs> but, you know, the point being, you know, it just kind of like, you know, it just took the edge off to some degree because I think these guys were so taken aback by the history they witnessed and the fact that they were a part of it. And, they, you know, they had, you know, they had such a good seat for it, so to speak. Um, you know, there were just so many great things to it. And Joe LaCava, who's Tiger's caddy, um, who I, you know, full disclosure, have been I'm pretty good friends with, um, another one of my favorite things, and I'll stop rambling, is when Tiger, you know, sunk the winning putt to clinch it, um, he immediately goes to Joe and yells, we did it. And Joe, I get goosebumps just talking about it right now, and Joe said, and you, you don't get this part on TV, you could see on TV when Tiger says, we did it. Joe said to him, he goes, no, you did it. And that's like the essence of Lacava. He's the most unselfish, unassuming guy on the planet. You know, of anybody you'll meet in sports. And I just love, you know, that was a, that was a poignant moment to me. You know, and I remember, you know, long after that, you know, the, the tournament was over, out in the parking lot, just hanging with Joe at, at the car. He had the 18th flag stick in the car, and you know, Tiger's clubs, and he was kind of waiting for Tiger to emerge. And I, he was just kind of going over the day, and it was just, you know, those are moments that I cherish as a sports writer because. You know, those are things we get to see, and those are things that I hope that I'm able to convey to the readers, because they're not there to do that, so to speak. You know, they don't have that kind of access. You know, no, that's, that. I mean, um, yeah, what you talk about, Joe Lakava is amazing, and because and, I've been to all these tournaments that he's been at, and when you see his interaction with Tiger, and you, and you spell it out in the book about his talking to him and how he works with him, calms him down, and it's just, it's totally different than Steve Williams uh, and, 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 and an attitude, but also even with the fans, I mean, you know, Tiger's in the middle of a tournament every, in, the, in, like, say, the Genesis, and then fans are screaming at him, all this other stuff, but LaCava sees, like, a bunch of little kids, and he'll always throw, like, a glove, a, you know, yeah. some tease or something. He's, he is aware of what it is, and so he softens it, so someone, someone said the fans saying, oh, Tiger didn't do this, or Tiger didn't, LaCava has that nice, I mean, He's not confront, confrontation with the fans. He's embracing no. them, and that's what I think helps. And and he's he's perfect. And I, as you mentioned in the book, um, when Tiger was out for I guess three a whole year and a half and couldn't play, he didn't he didn't he wasn't a caddy for anyone. He said, "I'm your no. caddy." Whereas Steve, the problem with Steve Williams was that Tiger, you know, Steve wanted to be on another person's bag. Well, hey, you're <laughs> exactly. off. You know? 
Yeah, Joe, I mean, Joe, you know, Tiger said to Joe, go get another bag. I don't care. Go work for somebody. You can come back to me if you want, whatever. If you don't, that's okay, too. Um, and Joe was like, no, you know what, I'm, I'm going to wait it out. He didn't want to do it. And, uh, you know, Joe is a extremely, obviously, you know, from these stories that, you, that, that we're telling or I'm telling, is an extremely loyal guy. And, uh, you know, he's become good friends with Tiger. I mean, Tiger's, you know, it's a... You know, Tiger's world is hard to, for any of us, you know, to understand because the guy can't go out in public, you know. I mean, he can barely go out in public, and if he does, he's got to have, a, you know, escape plan or whatever, you know what I mean? It's so, you know, Joe, there were times during that time when Tiger was recouping, when Joe would just go down to Florida and just hang with him in Florida or hang, go out on his boat with him and just BS about sports and watch sports on TV or whatever it is, you know, just to kind of hang with him and keep him company. And, uh, you know... That's just, you know, that's the kind of guy he is. I mean, that's why, you know, I mean, Joe LaCava was on Fred Couples' bag for 20 years. You know, I mean, that's unheard of for a caddy to be on somebody's bag for 20 years. You know, but that's the kind of guy Joe is. You know, he's not, you know, he's a special special individual, you know, particularly as it, as it pertains to the sport he's in and, you know, the job he does, so to speak. Um, we've been talking to Mark Canazaro from the New York Post, 70s in Augusta, behind the scenes of the Masters. Awesome book, tremendous book. You have everybody has a lot of time. They're sitting at their house. They said, don't play video games. Don't watch TV uh, the whole day. Pick up a good, get this book. You can order it on Amazon, order it uh, online. It's a, it's a great book. And before we let you go, I mean, this, the Honda Classic is, you know, the big thing down here at West Palm Beach. And I know you've been here before. Just that some of your, you know, thoughts about the Honda and about this tournament. It's really, as it's, you know, has a, 200,000 fans the last five years uh, has really been the central part of Palm Beach County. I'm a huge fan of the Honda. You know, I've been disappointed the last two years to see what's become of it because of the change in the PGA Tour schedule era. And, uh, you know, there's less, you know, I mean, I, listen, it's still a great social event for Palm Beach County there, obviously. Uh, but, you know, you have less media going there because the, the fields have weakened the last two years. Um, you know, because of the fact that the WGC Mexico, you know, and the condensed, you know, the condensed schedule. When they moved the PGA to the to May, that really threw a monkey wrench into the into the tour schedule and players' schedules and what they were going to play and not play. And now, I, selfishly speaking, my my one of my favorite runs of the year was to go down and do the Honda, and then go right down to Doral the following right, week and right. do the WGC down there. You know, and then obviously. With all the Trump stuff, they took they took you know the tour when you know left Doral and uh, now it goes to Mexico, so you don't have that little back to back thing and uh, you know so you know I think you know there's going to be there's there's a shift in the schedule I believe next year, um, so maybe the Honda will will get a better slot there. I'm, not, I, I'm I know they're I know they're moving things around where I think the the, the Arnold Palmer Invitational now goes a little bit earlier. Um, but I mean, listen. For what goes on at the tournament and on the site, you know, I don't. You probably don't see it as much, but I just think, as far as the coverage, you know, it, it doesn't get the same kind of coverage it, 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 it did with, with the better fields. But I, I happen to love the whole vibe there because I, you know, I'm for the kind of the, for lack of a better term, like the Gen X kind of world of golf. You know, the, the fans being a little bit more vocal and. <laughs> You know the, the vibe, the vibe out on the 17. bear trap on seventeen. I mean, the bear yeah, I mean, is, the whole, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean that that's fun. You know, I mean that that brings people. You know, some purists. You know, you know, and the golfers probably don't like it. You know, it's, it's the same thing with. You know, it's kind of all started with sixteen over at uh, at, at TPC uh, Scottsdale there. You know, for the for the Phoenix Open. You know, and that I love that stuff. I mean, it's it it makes it fun. You know, and it makes it more of an event. 
you don't like walking around a golf course where it's sleepy and there's like eight eight people behind the ropes kind of following whomever, you know. So I think what they've created down there with the bear trap and at 17 there is fantastic. It's a great party. You know, for the most part, people people handle themselves properly. I mean, you know, you're going to have certain knuckleheads out there. They're going to, you know, yell in somebody's swing or whatever the case may be. But and the same thing at you know at at at, at Phoenix. But um, I love it. You know, I, I you know I, I stay on site at the you know at the at the resort there. So you know, I mean, selfishly speaking, I you know I walk out of my hotel room and I'm on the golf course and and the range and I'm right at work, so to speak. You know, <laughs> so um, I, I I have not done I have not covered the tournament the last two years because of the way the schedules changed and my office just you know I don't I mean, my office doesn't send me to every single tournament. So um, and that that unfortunately on my schedule has been one that's gotten lost in in the shuffle. So uh, I hope that changes because I I really like it. I love to play golf there. I mean, I love the Arnold Palmer course on site there. They got a Fazio course on site there. You know, we play a little golf. You know, myself and some media colleagues during the week while we're covering the tournament too. So it's a everything about it is good, and uh, I'd like to see the field get a little stronger, especially since you know half the freaking PGA Tour lives down there, right? So uh, you know, you'd like to see a little bit a bit better field down there, in my opinion. Well, thank you. We would love for you to come back and hopefully next year when people are playing golf and watching golf and everything's back to it is. And, and hopefully, the, you know, the Honda is it was so well run this year uh, and it was a good tournament. And it's, a, it's just an exciting atmosphere. And we just like to see. Yeah, you're right. Get all the golfers that live here to play in here. But uh, we're t- we've talked to about Mark Carazano, Kenazaro of The New York Post, seven days in August. Augusta, seven days at Augusta behind the scenes at the Masters. Uh, thanks a lot, Mark, for coming on Iron Sports. Ira, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Great stuff from Mark Cannizzaro here on Ira on Sports. We'll be back next Monday night, 7 p.m. here on the True Oldies Channel.